Hello, and welcome back to Real-Time Strategy, a podcast all about the gaming industry. I'm one of your hosts, Caitlin Redwing, joined again by my co-host, Sam Mosier. Sam, how are you doing today? I'm great, Caitlin. Uh, I think, forgive my voice if it sounds a little frayed. I don't know whether it's some allergies. You know, we're, we're close to summer, um, but we're, the allergy season is in full swing. So other than that, I am great enjoying that warmer weather is uh, on the way, even if it comes with uh, some side effects. How about yourself? I'm doing well. I, I can't hear it in your voice, so I think you should sound fine on the podcast recording, but I definitely feel you with the allergies. I have like... I, I did put eyeliner on today, but I had it on yesterday. And my eyes watered so much that I was like, I rubbed it all off in an hour. So oh, no. I'm looking forward to like this bloom that LA is getting to pass, even though it looks really pretty. Um, yeah, my allergies are angry. <laughs> um, well, in this episode, uh, this is an exciting one. We are joined by uh, one of the Victoria 3 game directors. Mikhail first started working on Victoria 3 as lead game designer in 2017 before becoming a game director in 2021. We'll talk uh, a bit with him on his journey into the games industry and dive into Victoria 3 and what it's like being one of the directors on it. On Victoria 3 is it's one of the best like grand strategy games out there today. So welcome, Mikhail. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Um, so first off, we like to start asking our guests a couple get to know you questions. Sorry, I'm flailing around. There's like a gnat flying around my face right now. And I, it keeps like cutting in front of me. Um, but yeah, we'll just start with a couple get to know you questions. So the first one, pretty easy. What are you playing right now? And if you say Victoria three, that's cheating. <laughs> ask you yeah. to say something other than that. If you are. Yeah, games. no, I, I don't want to, I don't want to talk about what I'm playing at work. Uh, so I actually just finished a very cute little game called uh, Strange Horticulture. Uh, that's uh, about identifying plants in a sort of as low fantasy, uh, occultish kind of world. Um, very cool, uh, interesting little title. Uh, and um, uh, aside from that, uh, I think two other games that I've been playing a lot lately is uh, Stacklands and Cultus Simulator which are both kind of similar in their gameplay, uh, but uh, very different thematically. Um, basically, it's a simulation-y kind of games or uh, narrative, uh, narrative simulation games where you use cards as a central mechanic to, to drive the simulation and the story forward. Uh, very interesting titles. Um, oh. so, uh, what, yeah, was I, the, what was the second title? You said Stacklands and... Sta Stacklands and uh, Cultist Simulator. So Cultist Simulator is uh, by uh, Weather Factory, and, and it's, uh, um, yeah, it's this also a kind of a cult-themed game, uh, as you can probably <laughs> guess from the title, uh, about uh, becoming, like, being thrown into this life as a, as a cult leader who, who tries to summon demons and bring about his own awakening. Um, and uh, uh, it's basically the gameplay is you have a table full of cards and those cards are nouns and you put those nouns onto verbs and then timers spin uh, and things happen. Uh, and it sounds very, uh, uh, it sounds very trivial or, or, or like basic, uh, but it has so much complexity in it. And uh, what especially drives me 
to it, I think we're going to be talking a little bit more about that uh, today as well, is uh, just uh, the way that the this sort of piecemeal narrative that you get on these cards kind of drive and build up this larger uh, story that you're creating for yourself as you're playing. Mikhail, do you find yourself drawn most to playing strategy games outside of work or... I'd- is that your is that your genre? Do you sometimes do you need a break from strategy focused gaming? It's very mixed, uh, and it is true that sometimes uh, nowadays it's like playing strategy games. Sometimes it feels a little bit like work, <laughs> uh, and so so after work, uh, I typically relax with like an RPG or or uh, um, something like that. I've also been playing Dredge, which is like a fishing game. Oh, yes, uh, I love Dredge. <laughs> And uh, yeah, it's just uh, so so I like to experience a lot of different things. But um, of course, uh, the strategy genre is holds a big place in my heart. I do return to that uh, very, very frequently. I love that. Yeah, I I clicked on the cultist simulator on Steam and like the first words was it's a game of apocalypse and yearning. Uh And I was like, oh, interesting for like a. Yeah, card-based simulation strategy game. There's a lot of layers to that and um, Stacklands. I like the the art style of Stacklands a lot. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's interesting. It feels casual in its gameplay, but it's sort of an, anything but once you start building up this huge tableau of cards and you have all these things mm-hmm. uh, happening, uh, it becomes actually a lot like a strategy game in a way. You have to have a lot of things uh, uh in your head at one at one point right at one time yeah i and strange horticulture has been on my list for so long and i keep meaning to get to it but i'm like all of these games are i i want to say like almost fall into that cozy genre like there's uh-huh. there are strategy games but when i looked at these i think it's because cozy genre is like the buzzword right now and i was mm-hmm. just thinking about that i'm like it's crazy how some games appear that way but like you said like there's so much more to it than what it kind of looks like Uh, yeah especially when it becomes that over time right because i feel like a lot of these cozy games they they lure you into it uh they're very uh, simple and friendly you know on the surface they're easy accessible to get into and then over time the the best ones i guess are the ones that build a lot of complexity over time and where if you jump into it uh you know after a few days you load up your save and it's like you're coming into your own world right mm-hmm. uh that only you really have this relationship with so uh yeah yeah no i i like those kinds of games a lot but but yeah i I, I do and I need to play, uh, you know, tons of different games and different genres. I think action games is probably the one that I play the least. But aside from like puzzle games, RPGs, um, strategy, obviously, uh, uh, are all on my uh, very prominent in my Steam library. Yeah, this is uh, my follow up question is not the second get to know you question, but I just wanted to know, like, what? Is mm-hmm. your favorite like strategy or puzzle game of all time? Ooh, um, if I had to pick one, if I had to pick one, I'm you gonna... can you can name a few too if you yeah, want. No, I know let, picking let's one go is with, hard. Uh, I have one that I do go to uh, sometimes, and I have to get the uh, the 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 name right here. It's called Opus Magnum, uh, and it's by uh, Zachtronic. Uh, now that I now that I mention it, I feel like there's like a common theme to a lot of these. Like it's usually about 
some sort of occult uh, <laughs> themed games. In this one, you play an alchemist, right? Um, and uh, it is really a machine building game. Uh, and you're trying to create alchemical machines as effectively as possible. If you're familiar with Zachtronic uh, puzzle games, they're, they're just like these brilliant... Um, uh, brilliant games with wildly different themes, but extremely clever in how they're, they're built up. So it's usually about optimizing something. Uh, and in this case, is you have all these alchemical elements and things that move those alchemical elements around, and you have to, on every level, create the most effective machine, right? Um, and the, the cleverest thing about this one is that it... Um, like like a, a few of of uh, Zachtronic's titles actually, they have a uh, an online leaderboard. So after every level, you get to compare how effective your machine is in three different uh, axes. So like how how uh, efficient were you in using space? How how many cycles did you run? Uh, right. So you can compare your creations to other people's. And it makes you want to optimize things just a little bit more every single time. So you keep replaying the same level, trying to perfect your creations. And it's very, very cool. Hmm. I love that. Opus Magnum in Latin means work great. Mm -hmm. What a fitting title for this game. Um, yeah. I actually had not heard of Zachtronics until now, but I'm just kind of scrolling. I was scrolling the Opus Magnum and their other games. Yeah. And God, I love puzzle games. I, this was a mistake because I now have like a list of five games that I am going to download after this. I do this every time we have a guest on, they start talking about games they love. I'm like a sucker when people talk about something they're passionate about. Mm. Um, but man, I love puzzle games. I think my first one that like really got me like hooked was Mist back. Mm -hmm. I don't even know what year it was. I mean, I was like younger. My dad was playing it, but I remember like we would play together and I had like a journal and I'd had to like write everything down. And I was like, this is, this is what a video game can be. And, and ever since then, it's just been like, yeah, down the rabbit yeah. hole, have not escaped. Um, yeah. No, I, I started with uh, text adventure games, and I think, you know, Myst is basically a text adventure game with graphics, yeah. right? <laughs> yes. Uh, and it's the same, it's the same sort, of, uh, sort of feeling, and yeah, definitely where I, I became really uh, enthralled by, by what these things can do. And they were so primitive at the time, but they put up a really good illusion of mm -hmm. being another world that you were thrown into, right? Yeah, and I, I, they got really creative of what they could do with, in the limitations of yeah. the so software and hardware. Mm -hmm. So my second question, which is actually my third, what games are you most looking forward to coming out this year? Yeah, there's so many. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to be a little self promoting actually, because, uh, and this is, this is um, very, very genuine response. Uh, some of the titles that I'm looking forward to the most are paradox titles. Um, uh, we have uh, Age of Wonders 4 releasing tomorrow. I have not actually had any time to play it, but I've been itching to play it. Uh, and, uh, and, and now that I'm seeing you know, everyone playing it and saying such good things about it, I'm, I'm just really excited to make you know, pacifist orcs because that's what I want to do. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, then... Uh, oh, we have so many things. Uh, Lamplighters League 
is is an X one, yes. right? Which is like a pulp uh, uh, tactics game, right? Uh, and like that's a that's a theme that I'm also really fascinated by. Uh, so just digging into the lore of that and the IP of that, I think it's going to be interesting. Just uh, outside of the the tactics gameplay, uh, and then the other the other two titles uh, from us. Uh, that I'm really excited about is C- Cities 2, and uh, so City Skylines 2. I'm a huge city bl- builder builder fan uh, as well, right? Uh, and and uh, I think that this is going to be really exciting uh, to see what what they're coming out with next. Uh, and um, Life by You. Yes. Right. Uh, so this is uh, so many people when I talk to them about this are like, but you, but but you don't play The Sims, right? And I'm like, I, I, I'm a huge Sims fan, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> I think there's, again, so many, so many, um, uh, so many overlaps in that sort of life sim genre um, with what we do on the grand strategy side and that sounds crazy but it again comes down to the sort of narrative uh like the storytelling aspect of things uh little things happen that are being simulated in some sort of system that lets you as a player like weave the story uh and and uh so i'm 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 really excited to see again like the the sort of next next genre of life sims um I know. I when I saw the Life by You trailer, it was like, it, it wasn't too long after I think the Sims EA had their like Sims event, and there was like a brief look at what like maybe what Sims Five is gonna be, and I was like, oh, I was mm-hmm. like, well, they don't really have anything to show, and I was like, I used to love the Sims, and I love yeah. like life Sims, and then I saw the Life by You trailer, and I was like, never mind, I know exactly what I'm waiting for, yeah. and it's this game, and I think the the Sim community is gonna be really yeah like, like happy when that comes out i think leaning into the modability aspect is the exact yeah. right thing to do uh because because there's just you know there's so many things that you would like to do with this game that you don't want to wait for content to come out you just want to make it mm-hmm. <laughs> you right know? like you said you it's like less restrictions in. yeah yeah it's telling yeah. your own story yeah yeah, it's clear uh, strategy fans and players are going to be well-fed this year. Uh, and, and speaking yeah. of, y- you started off your answer at the top with it. Uh, by the time this episode is out, uh, Age of Wonders 4 is available now. It comes out the week we're recording. Oh, yeah. So uh, if you're interested yeah. in checking that out. Um, just for people who like are not aware, would you say like Age of Wonders 4 is a game that like, people haven't played the previous Age of Wonders? Would they be able to? Oh, like, yeah. They could easily jump. Yeah, into yeah, it. Yeah, abs- absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if anything, like I, I would say, the the uh, the progression uh, of the Age of Wonder series is is really like an evolution in terms of accessibility and depth of gameplay, both. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna do better starting with Age of Wonders four than to start with some of the previous titles. Of course, if you play the previous one once and maybe you put them down because you couldn't quite figure it out or whatever uh age of wonders 4 is gonna it's gonna fix that for you i think uh it is it is very smooth uh easy to get into and then you can sort of customize your way uh into 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 the complexity so mm-hmm. awesome well people who are listening go check out age of wonders 4 and yeah it just seems like paradox has just 
a huge like portfolio of games coming out this year. It's, mm-hmm. I wish you guys all the luck. It's they're all games that I'm interested in, and I'm not on the Paradox team. Just for those who are listening. And every time I like see a game that comes out, I'm like, oh, this looks really cool. Yeah. And I like read that it's by Paradox. And I'm like, I, you guys just have so many very awesome like fantasy strategy type games. Um, and just they're with a lot of variety to them. Yeah, it's all sort of coming together this year. I don't, I don't know what happened, but there was something about 2023 that was just like, yeah, we're going to release every, you know, big, big title that we have in development, and just chunk them all up and and put them all out, uh, sort of at once. What what could go wrong? Uh, right, you're just going to be your yeah. own competitor at this point. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, uh, and uh, yeah, it, it's it's it sounds it sounds self-serving, but really it isn't. These are the games that I'm excited about, um, and it just so happens that we're publishing all of them. So, yeah, no, that's great. I mean, you're here to talk about you and your work, so it makes sense to, you know, a little self-promotion is warranted and encouraged. <laughs> uh, but before we kind of dive into the game that you know the most about, which is Victory mm-hmm. 3, um, want to just talk a little bit about your like journey into the games industry. I know you and I talked about this a little bit when we met at GDC, and I thought it was just you had a very fascinating journey. Um, so I just would like to kind of talk a little bit about that but um yeah like i mentioned before you you first started at paradox in 2017 you were a lead game designer um on victoria 3 before becoming a game director in 2021 but before that like we've talked about before you were an it project manager for many years and i'm sure had other titles as well what kind of made you decide to pivot to video games uh it was uh it was very much a less of a pivot to video games and more of a pivot to paradox, if that makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, I wasn't really looking to get into the games industry as such. Uh, I I was sort of brought up with the idea that video games was not a job. Uh, it, it was always something that I was really fascinated by and something that you know drove my interest in computers and stuff like that but it was never had a had a thought that you could make a living doing video games and of course that sounds ridiculous now but if you're a kid back in the 80s right then then it sounds like a pipe dream you know you're either a super genius with a commodore 64 or you have no future uh if you try to go that route um so uh, you know, at the time, I really was not thinking about breaking into video games. I was uh, just really obsessed with playing Crusader Kings <laughs> 2 uh, and <laughs> and sort of seeing uh, this this sort of conjunction of my various interests, right? Because I was always fascinated by games. Uh, so outside of my career, I always uh, fiddled with board games and role-playing games, right? Because that's sort of... Um, what I had the bandwidth to do, right? Like I couldn't take years off work to do a video game. Um, but I could I could uh, tinker with role-playing games and board games, and I ran a convention and stuff like that. Uh, so I was really involved in games in that way. Um, and a lot of it in like storytelling games, right? Uh, and uh, with Crusader Kings, I, I I sort of saw this like, you know, like civilization type game, right? That we've played, that I'd played before strategy games that 
didn't just wasn't just like about expanding your borders and conquering your 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 enemies uh but it was about creating this story that emerged um not just being retold to you but something that you created as you went and i was so fascinated by this right uh, and then the deeper i dug into paradox uh at that time i i just sort of found that this was like an ethos that uh went throughout all their games and i just became really fascinated with the idea of maybe i could work there right mm -hmm. uh and so i really just applied on a lark to uh game design uh job that was being posted and at the time i was working in canada not in sweden uh, i'm from sweden originally but I, I i moved uh a long time ago uh and uh so it was not even serious, you know, at that point, it was, it was, I'm not going to be packing up and moving to Sweden, but I was really excited about this idea uh, of, of, uh, of working there. And it just so happened that they hired me. So uh, then I started uh, as a, as a game designer on, uh, at the time I didn't, nobody knew, uh, or I didn't know. Uh, and nobody else was allowed to know that it was Victoria 3 at the time, right? So I had mm -hmm. to keep that a secret for solid three, four years. Um, and uh, But it was also like the perfect game for me to get into uh, mm -hmm. just because of its themes. And uh, so it was, it was really a couple of weeks after I started that I was like, yeah, this is, this is my home. This is where I belong, right? Mm -hmm. um, so you often hear this sort of people who pursue their dream job and then they realize that now it's a job, right? Like, like, uh, mm -hmm. um, and, and it is a job. Uh, it's not all, you know, uh, it's, it's not all milk and honey every day, right? right. But, but uh, uh, it's hard work, but it's also exactly where I want to be. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's something about like, it being hard work, but it being like a fulfilling hard work. And yeah. if you're going, if you're going to have a job, you might as well have a job that's something that you're passionate about already. Yeah. Yeah. No, the really the, the difficult part now is like figuring out where, where does the job end, mm. right? Uh, so that this fun thing that I do during this really exciting, fun, engaging thing that I do during the workday, how do I keep that from occupying my entire life, right? right. <laughs> uh, because uh, uh, before it was very clear, you know, at, at six o'clock, that was the end of my workday. And that was, and now I'm gonna do fun stuff. But it's, it's harder when you're doing fun stuff, you know, all the time in a way. Yeah, yeah, it's, I, I try to tell myself that I'm like, okay, there are some times where I'm like, yeah, I like work later. I'm like going to work events and it's like, oh, it's a weekend. It's an evening, but I'm like, but I am enjoying what I'm doing. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. <laughs> I, there will be days when I'm not doing this and I'll just be at home and I can sit and play a video game all day. But I'm like, it's fine that it's not today because I, I like what I do. And I yeah. think that's, it's a rare thing to have, but it's a, it's a blessing. Mikhail, what were the making that shift into games driven by that passion for finding the storytelling within, you know, these these gameplay systems? Um, what surprised you about finally, you know, taking that dream job? So, I, I mean, I at the time, I really did not know because I came in from um, 
from a very orthogonal angle, right? So I hadn't been through uh, like what a recent like game studies graduate uh, might be might be going into, right? So I didn't know uh, all the details about production and like what uh, what exactly every milestone uh, entailed and uh, how design documentation should be written and all that stuff. Uh, I had to learn on the job, right? So I came in with a bunch of sort of secondary skills and um, and game design skills sort of in general, uh, but not specifically for this product. Uh, and uh, it it took a lot of trial and error, uh, I guess, in, in, in trying to figure out what works and what doesn't. Um, and I think also Paradox was going through a big shift at the time uh, in sort of growing up as a company. Um, and uh, like like they had had an IPO, I think, uh, the year prior um, to me to me coming on board, right? So mm-hmm. they shifted very much in terms of uh, the company. So there weren't really a very established structure for exactly how this should be done either so that was kind of good and bad it was a lot of trial and error on my part uh, and that also meant that i could share what i had discovered with other uh, with other other people in the company uh, and sort of use that as a framework for uh, what sort of procedures do we follow um, but it was also, there was nobody really there to tell me this works and this doesn't because we were all sort of transitioning. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, uh, so yeah, a lot of, a lot of just figuring, figuring out the job while you're on the job. Right. Yeah. That was, that was probably the big surprise. Uh, you said you brought like a lot of secondary skills to like the game designer position. Um, what would you say like are the skills you would recommend people having if they wanted to pursue a game design position so um this isn't a skill but i think you need to have a lot of passion for what you do what you do and the game you're working on right uh you and i i say that as primary because i think that secondary skills there are so many secondary skills that will shape the kind of game that you're making um so it's not so much maybe that you need x y and z in order to make something it's more you are x y and z and therefore you're gonna make x y and z right uh if you see what i mean um so in terms of secondary skills you know what what i brought with me um was uh like i'd been doing uh, a lot of uh, system systems analysis um uh, project management like you mentioned uh, and um that means like documentation work uh and just looking at different um looking at different systems from different angles and optimization problems um, and uh, obviously a lot of things like uh, programming and, and things like that, right? And all of those things, I think, has uh, shaped Victoria into the game that it is today uh, and has shaped, you know, everything that I touch in a way yeah. uh, to 
to sort of imbue that, right? So when I think about these things, uh, when I think about a strategy game, you know, I might think more in terms of optimization than someone else uh, that's designing that's designing the same game, maybe, uh, but coming at it from a different angle. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, to answer your question, maybe a little more, uh, <laughs> a little more directly. Um, if you're passionate about the thing that you do, see how what you have with you, what is in your baggage, and how can you contribute, right? Uh, like I say that my, I, I do think that my sort of career trajectory was a little orthogonal and, and uh, unorthodox, uh, but we have people at Paradox who have worked uh, as uh, like historians before, uh, as, as uh, uh, like, PhDs in chemistry, like like just completely what might seem like historian, maybe not so much, but but completely what might seem like uh, different uh, kinds of paths, and because they've been excited about the games, they've made that that jump, and they bring so much good stuff with them. I like that. I mean. I feel like everyone was always like, I had like an unorthodox way into the games industry. It feels like everybody just found their way in. And like you said, it's figuring out what you're bringing to the table. And cause yeah, I mean, making games is such a unique art craft that I, I mean, now there are more programs at schools for like game design, mm-hmm. but yeah. for a really long time, that was really rare. So most people who worked in games probably did not study that and did not have previous experience and just use the skills that they naturally had from other positions and yeah used it I, to make I, be creative. I mean I I think that uh, I think that the programs are really uh, great and they put you in the sort of mindset that you need to be and they tell you maybe some things of what to expect uh, so that when you come in, you know, uh, come into a company, you can kind of uh, uh, get a running start, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in a way that otherwise you might not have. Uh, but even I think very, very seasoned uh, designers will tell you that like nobody knows anything. Uh, <laughs> there's no established like this is how you make a video game kind of formula. Right. Uh, so when you start doing that weird little thing, you will start encountering all these problems that are so extremely domain specific that whatever you can bring to it, whatever angle you can attack this from is going to help you in some way. And that's where it's beneficial, like you said, to bring those unique perspectives and backgrounds whether it's chemistry or history or it to tackle those solutions in creative ways that people who went through other backgrounds would never be able to think of absolutely absolutely it's uh the multidisciplinary approach is is absolutely the best and that's that like that's something that we're seeing very very practically too in in day to day that we just get better results if we take everyone from all the different disciplines, you know, art, UX, uh, programming, design, uh, narrative, like you put them all in a room and, uh, and, and, and they will come up with something that's much, much better uh, and tackle everything from all the different angles. It's much, much better than like one person um, uh, sitting, you know, on their own for two weeks can, can mm-hmm. do. Um, because you need to approach this from 
from all the directions. It's it's such a sort of all-encompassing experience, a video game. So speaking of those disciplines that you named, we have a lot of people listening who obviously are interested in gaming to some degree and probably have in their mind, including myself, some idea of what game design means, but might not actually know what mm-hmm. the work of a game designer is. What is, how would you describe your your work to the layman and what is a, a day-to-day or, or maybe more so week-to-week or month-to-month, whoever you need to frame the perspective yeah. to help people understand what you do? Uh, so in terms of what I do as a game director now uh, is, uh, yeah, it's it's very varied uh, and, and a lot of it uh, is uh, unfortunately meetings, uh, <laughs> right? Uh, you you will be spending a lot of your your time in meetings, uh, and that's just because a lot of the decisions need to go through that level, right? Uh, on the other hand, it's it's a lot of varied work. One day you will be dealing with a problem of a mistranslated word in uh, in a language that uh, has some meaning that you're not aware of and how do we tackle this issue from a PR perspective right uh, and uh, and on the next it will be uh, there's a big balance problem uh, in the way that uh, the landowners interact with uh, mm-hmm. the art academies right like um, it's it's uh, so it's it's a lot of different uh, problems to solve Um for me, uh, a lot of the work that I do, of course, I mean, the biggest uh, the biggest task for me is just uh, feedbacking on the game, uh, evaluating the game, and giving the leads and the rest of the team feedback on how do how do I think that we should um, solve certain problems or drift things in a different direction, um, just to make sure that we sort of stay true to what the game is and what it's supposed to be. Um, from a design perspective, because uh, the game director do, um, we do also uh, sort of head up the uh, design department. Design is, is, I think, a very interesting subject at Paradox as well. It's probably a little different uh, at other studios. But uh, for us, a game designer can mean a number of different things. Uh, we have different specialties within the design guild. So you can be a designer that focuses on uh, historical research uh, or research in general. So maybe if you're working on Stellaris, you'll be researching uh, uh, science fiction IPs, right? Um, if you're on Victoria, you're going to be researching the Victorian age or some certain country in the year 1850, right? Mm-hmm. Um and uh, 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 another aspect is just database work. Uh, so just setting up all of the sort of historical um, preconditions that existed, right? There's a huge task for us, obviously. We're setting up, you know, all of the properties of the world, like not all of the properties, but a lot of the properties of the world in a certain year. And we have to make sure that, that we get that right, both from a, from a like historicity perspective and from a balance perspective. Um, then we have, um, we have, of course, narrative design. So uh, write good words, right? <laughs> writing, <laughs> writing good narratives. Uh, and uh, and this is also a very sort of special craft in paradox. Uh, I think we 
we have a way of writing that needs to fit our games uh, and also be immersive and convey the the information that's needed. Um, so it's also a very special skill. And then uh, naturally systems design, right? So just, and that's sort of where, where I come from uh, or my specialty is uh, looking at the different uh, features, uh, different gameplay systems and mechanics that we put into the game uh, and figuring out how they should interact and what sort of gameplay behaviors do we get and player behaviors do we get when we have systems interacting a certain way. So a lot of different, uh, a lot of different areas, and most people sort of specialize in, in a couple of them, um, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, but everyone sort of does a little bit of everything. Yeah, it's you. While you were explaining like the different crafts, I'm like I could tell you like you would be the systems like designer. It's even like your job as one of the game directors almost feels like you come full circle from project manager. And IT to like yeah. basically doing that just with games. Yeah. Uh, but it is, it is, and again, this is where I think it's so important that you like respect uh, the baggage you come with, right? Because uh, that's my background, and there are other game directors at Paradox who come from more of a programming background, and they will have, uh, they will have more. Uh, insight into how the the actual code systems work underneath and that's a very useful skill to do and th that might mean that they make a game that's very um, uh, effective in its use of resources for example um, and uh, we have a game director with a UX background uh, and then the actual like that visual experience between the the player and the and the game is the thing that's mm -hmm. Uh, becoming the most sort of highlighted aspect, uh, right? And and all of yeah, um, I think you can come at again. You can come at the problem of how do you make a good game from so many different angles. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, it almost feels like, I, and I don't know about other studios, but it feels like you would need to have multiple game directors because you all have like different background and different specialties and. I imagine it's impossible to find someone who just like can do knows everything that well. It's I feel like it would yeah. make a better game when you've got multiple people who are passionate and very knowledgeable about certain areas. Yeah, we do a lot of feedbacking on each other's games uh, as well as a result of that, right? So uh, and and it's so useful to get the different different perspectives and i think a lot of people when they look at our grand strategy titles in particular sort of a lot of players sort of look at it intuitively as this sort of historical timeline maybe or like variations on the same kind of game and in a way it is because it's like the same underlying engine and the same sort of underlying base assumptions on a lot of things but the games are actually very very different so uh, they and they emphasize different things. So Crusader Kings is a very, very narrative-focused games game, for example. Uh, EU uh, Europa Universalis is is a lot more uh, tactics and diplomacy and just like hardcore board gamey strategy focused. Um, and uh, and Victoria is more of a management kind of title, right? So even though uh, even though it is a similar feeling game set along a timeline 
the games have their own niche and and interact with the player in very different ways. So they need a different kind of approach. I like that. I feel like this this is a good segue for us to kind of talk a little bit more about Victoria Three then. Um since you are a game director in Victoria Three. Um, mm-hmm. I'll give a, a little bit of background for our listeners who maybe are unfamiliar, but Victoria Three is just a grand strategy title by Paradox uh, Interactive and just one of the most highly anticipated grand strategy games, I think, feel like in Paradox's history. Um, the Victoria ser- series is just a society simulation set in the Victorian era. Uh, Victoria Three is no different. Players track the needs and desires of national populations, each with their own political and societal differences, and try to maintain balance in the world while you command a nation through 100 years of fortune and hardships. Um, this is a very just high level description. Uh, Mikhail, you did talk about how like Victoria Three differs from other grand strategy games under Paradox's umbrella. I like to ask you just like with all that set aside, what do you really think is like what's the heart of Victoria Three? Like how how do you describe the game without my like PR buzzwordies <laughs> description? <laughs> sure. Uh yeah, so so one thing uh one way to describe it is for someone familiar with the grand strategy genre is to say take a grand strategy game and marry it with a management sim. Uh, like Factorio or or something like that, and and that's you know closer to uh, to where Victoria is. Um, but I would say the sort of core premise of Victoria is it's a game about revolutions. Um, so it's a game about the industrial revolution. It's a game about political revolutions, um, and it is the game sort of set in the time period that establishes our current era. So one of the things that we really wanted to do with Victoria was to uh, make it sort of like the ultimate alt history kind of sandbox game uh, where we didn't want to sort of slavishly just adhere to history. We wanted to let players um, use these economic and political and diplomatic tools uh, to change the course of history and see the sort of butterfly effect. What would happen if uh, kind of thing? And then by the end of it, uh, like uh, one thing that's, that that I think is is interesting is the sort of perspective that players have to uh, the his- history of um, the sort of historical context of our game. Because uh, I feel like almost everyone has some idea of what was the world like in 1936, which is the end state of Victoria. So it feels much more like our world right than the end state of european universalis or crusader kings or um those games set in in older time periods um so just seeing you know what would happen if france took the dominant position in um world politics and uh trade instead of uh great britain for example mm-hmm. what would happen if world war 1 didn't happen what would happen if it happened ten years earlier and involved uh, um, and involved China as well? Those yeah. kinds of things uh, are the sort of fantasies that we wanna that that we wanna cater to. Um, so for us, that means having uh, and sustaining a working theory of how history is created, um, because we we need some sort of thing that the player can manipulate in order to make history come about in a way that 
that feels immersive to them, right? That feels plausible to them. Um, and for Victoria, that is uh, saying that history is created uh, through material conditions of people. So people want access to tea, and therefore uh, Great Britain is is causing conflict in other parts of the world due to the, the trade in tea, right? Um, and that that is basically the driver. So the way that uh, the game works there is uh, that that uh, I think the thing that sets Victoria apart from uh, all of our other games is that we uh, basically count for every person in the world. So where, where it says that you have, you know, 100 million people in your country, we actually keep track of those 100 million people, uh, who they are, uh, what their political allegiances are, what they eat for dinner, right? Uh, the the important socioeconomic stuff, not mm-hmm. not not what their children are named, but uh, everything that matters to the simulation. Uh, and uh, those are the people that you hire into your army. Those are the people that go to work in your factories. Those are the people that will emigrate away from your country if you're not providing them with a good enough life, right? And so that's your basic resource. And it's also your sort of basic driver for uh, what should happen in your country, right? So it's like the building blocks of the simulation are these, what we call POPs, right? Uh, Which originally stood for parts of population and still kind of does, but everyone just thinks of people as pops now when they play these games, so pops. Um, and you're interacting with these pops, not directly by clicking on them, uh, right? But you are interacting with them by um, by expanding industries to, uh, to create more jobs for them in certain sectors. Uh, you're interacting with them by uh, passing the kind of laws that the interest groups that they support want. Uh, and uh, you're interacting with them by issuing decrees that affect the states that they live in uh, to to maybe increase their access to education uh, or, um, or persecute them because they don't think the way you do, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you're manipulating these pops in different ways, and then the pops through these interest groups that I mentioned, these sort of political avatars, uh, will influence back at you. So they will demand things of you. Uh, they will uh, start revolutions if you don't give them what they want, uh, and um, uh, they will demand to be in government. Or uh, and then you can, you know, you can form your government to make. Uh, to create different compositions of interest groups that want different kinds of laws that affect the pops in different ways and so on. So it's this constant sort of give and take b- between the economic and the and the political systems. Mm-hmm. Um, and the economic systems uh, will influence the pops politically as well. So when you are creating uh, jobs for people as shopkeepers uh, instead of clerks, Right then, or laborers, then uh, eventually the people who um, manage to claw their way up to take those shopkeeper positions will gain different kinds of uh, political motivations and will support different groups uh, than the than the the pop that they originated from, the labor pop, but the clerk pop, right? Um, so 
but you will need to create these different kinds of jobs or, and, and create these different kinds of, uh, of factories uh, and and farms and whatnot in order to feed your people and give them the kind of goods that they want. Uh, if you don't do that domestically, you can always trade for them, but that means that you're uh, benefiting maybe your rival, right? Right. Uh, who can then sort of run their industries off the top of your pops. So uh, th this is the sort of intricate bit of simulation, essentially, that, that we do uh, and the, and the, the sort of uh, cross-play between uh, the economic and the political side yeah. that sort of yeah, drives yeah. the plot forward in a way. It's a, I mean, it seems like a very complex system because there's just so many economic and political powers in play. Um, since it's set in the Victorian era, and I know you said this is more of like, doesn't follow history to the dot, it kind of lets you, lets you yeah. explore the what if. What was the process of like, how much research did you guys have to do into the history to kind of decide like what the economic and political like repercussions would be? Like how, how much... Yep. You see what I'm kind of asking? I, I do. I it's do. Little, it's a little complicated, but I think it's because it's a complicated system, and like, there's a yeah. lot of no. There's a and there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of nuance there. There's a lot of answers I can give could give to this. But um, for starters, just to answer the sort of basic question, how much research do we have mm -hmm. to do? The sort of base fundamentals are really like pop history, right? Uh, because it needs to be pop history because that's what players uh, most players know and connect with right. if we go you know super like whatever some history paper that someone published in 2014 that's on a very very narrow <laughs> subject nobody's heard of that and so that's not going to be helpful in terms of immersing yourself in the game so we start from that like basic narrative of the victorian era that everyone kind of knows um or everyone who's interested in this period at least kind of knows. Um, and then we go to what I mentioned before about the baggage. <laughs> then we go to each individual uh, designer or even uh, other people on the development team that have some special interest in a certain field. Uh, and uh, because, because there's hardly anyone that works on these kinds of games that don't have some sort of connection to, well, this this really weird uh, train accident happened in 1877, and I really want to represent that somehow, right? The differences, I guess, in Victoria uh, is that we want to then take these ultra-specific things, um, or even in some cases, the sort of broad trends, and we want to file off the serial numbers and think about how what were the actual um, preconditions for this event happening? What, what, was the, what was the reason for it? Mm -hmm. And then see how can we generalize this? How can we make sure that this sort of train accident that happened in Maryland on such and such date uh, for these various reasons, how can we make sure that that train accident could also happen um, in Algier if someone built a railroad there mm -hmm. uh, in a different year right um and then the question and this is this is a very 
challenging part of the job actually is uh, how do you take these things that people might connect with uh, from a just a, from a pure story perspective and make sure that they recognize them when they happen under different c- conditions right? right someone who's really excited about this train accident in maryland in 1877 will they recognize it when it happens in algier how do we what sort of details do we do we provide uh, so that they will still feel like they're playing history right and not just a sort of game of random events mm-hmm. uh, but this is the sort of push and pull that we have to that we have to do constantly because we want to do an alt history game that is logical and um uh, and immersive but we also want we recognize that players want to uh, see their favorite stuff happen, right? They they want to see the canon, right? Right. Uh, and uh, and so how do we how do we make sure that they recognize themselves in this in this emer- emergent narrative? Speaking of that push pull, since the game covers 1836 to 1936, was it particularly difficult to design the events and consequences? And train reactions that particularly play out in that like latter period 1900s considering all the choices that they can make leading up to that point yeah 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 i know that's incredibly difficult right and that is um um very similar to like if you if you've played a game like crusader kings right crusader kings has a setup uh, in the in the beginning um which is i forget the exact year now but it's like year 900 something um and that is pretty true to history like the the characters that we know and love uh and and they're all dispersed across the map but as soon as you hit uh, on pause right everything goes crazy and people marry the wrong people and and then borders shift in ways that don't make sense right uh and that game spans for centuries and centuries so there's no possible way <laughs> that in 13 37 that that game is going to uh, actually have anything to do with with modern history right and it's the same sort of thing here but it is a bit more sensitive because we recognize things more being closer in history than 1337 right um so We've uh, one thing, one device that we use in Victoria Three for this is um, a sort of narrative device that we call a journal entry. And the the idea here is that the player has a journal that uh, tracks sort of ongoing major events, uh, and uh, it's a little bit like a quest log and a little bit like a like a memoir or or whatever, um, and. The way that that works is that is usually these historical events uh, with pretty broad trigger conditions. So it could be something like after this particular technology is invented or this idea has been um, uh, proliferated. uh, And uh, if you're in a country with at least uh, five states and if you're this and this like basically like a set of pretty broad trigger conditions then this event can happen that is very recognizable to history. And then uh, if if the right sort of transition events um, or the right trigger conditions transpires to let you transition out of that, then this very also 
quite historical event might happen, right? So uh, as an example, you could have like the um, creation of the first skyscraper, which is inspired by the construction of the Empire State Building. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just, you know, you, you just need a city of a certain size. Uh, and then as soon as you, I think it's steel frame buildings or elevators or some tech there that you have to have. Uh, and as long as you have that, then you basically get this challenge of building this first skyscraper. Uh, and it's very recognizable as a historic event and it happens roughly when it's supposed to. Um, but we have to seed those kinds of things in to make sure that there's at least some recognizable events towards the latter part of the game because otherwise just sort of all bets are off, right? <laughs> uh, in terms of what what might transpire. Right. So, but this is something we basically had to uh, had to invent, right? How do we how do we create something uh, that that we can use to drive some sort of historical events forward without it seeming railroady? Sorry, I'm like really fascinated and just thinking of history now. We've talked a lot about like the system and everything that people like the players can manipulate and do, and it's like I said, it's it's a very complex game, and we call it it's a grand strategy game. Um, and I know like strategy games in general are known to have like pretty dense tutorials. How mm -hmm. how did you guys like approach this with Victoria Three? Because I imagine it's got to be pretty difficult to really show all of this to a player who's just starting out and so i'm not sure if that's tutorials a longer process than what you would usually find or i'd like to know more there so uh yeah it's the idea that a player would have to know all of the systems before they get started is just that's not doable like right. we could we could publish a 250 page manual or something and force them to read through it, it no uh that, <laughs> then they that would doesn't quit work. the game before they even like get into it yeah yeah i mean there there will be there will be some players who would love that but that's <laughs> not you know in the year 2023 uh that is not uh really a um that's not a large enough audience, shall we say, to to make a game go. So no, we basically, uh, in terms of teaching the game, uh, we use a couple of methods and neither of them is uh, what you would call a traditional tutorial. Um, I think the thing that we use that to teach the game uh, best, like the thing that, te that players learn from the best, is uh, something called game concepts. And this is not uh, exactly new, like we use it in uh, Crusader Kings as well, um, but uh, it's basically tooltipable words in the user interface that when you hover them will explain what is this thing, right? Mm -hmm. So if you see the word prestige somewhere, you can tooltip that thing and it will tell you what does prestige mean, how do you get it, what's it used for, uh, maybe even how much do you have right now? Um, and uh, so players can sort of just explore the user interface and learn what the different things do by just hovering over the different um, the different terms. Uh, and this is by 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 far uh, the thing that players learn from the most. But we also have. Um, uh, something called objectives in the game. And this is really a way when you start a new game, you can choose to play an objective or you can choose to play sandbox. 
and the objectives are basically just uh, sort of struct give some structure to your playthrough. So it tells you um, maybe you should do this now, right? And then you should you should aim for this goal. And then when you succeed in that goal, it's, it's okay. Now now try this one, right? Um, and um, one of those objectives uh, is called learn the game. So uh, as a player, you tell the, the game that you would like to learn it. And as a result, it will, uh, it will proactively give you things to try to do in order to, to learn it, right? So the first, um, uh, the first challenge there that it gives you is uh, expand a building. And you can go in and figure out, like, why would I want to do that? Uh, okay, how do I do that? And it guides you through the interface and lets you, and lets you do it, or you can try it on your own. Um, and then once you've done that, it's, okay, now change what this building does. Okay, now it seems like this building's uh, unprofitable. Uh, see if you can uh, fix up its, uh, its, its balance sheet, right? How do you how do you make sure that its input goods are cheap and its output goods are expensive, um, and it gradually becomes more and more complex and starts integrating more and more of these um, things that you've already learned into the sort of larger lessons. And once you're done with economy, it then moves on to politics and so on, right? So it's basically like you play the game normally, you play the game exactly as you normally would if you just said said i'm just going to go in and play sandbox mm -hmm. but there's always a little thing in the top right corner that says hey you should maybe aim for this and i'm here to give you a hand like clippy style if yeah. you <laughs> uh if if you want right um and it's still the game concepts that teach player the most but this is basically a way to uh structure your gameplay so that you at least have you have something to do and you can get a little bit of context for why am I doing this. Um, and this combination has actually worked pretty well, we've found, in uh, helping players learn a game that's just, you know, ridiculously complex sometimes. Yeah, you you mentioned the the why should you do this. I feel like that that part is missing, I feel like, a lot in some game tutorials where it's like, this is what this thing does. Um, and then like that's all the context you get but for something like this where it's like your consequences have actions and or your <laughs> actions have consequences yeah. the yeah. the why is really important um i'm yeah you mentioned it a couple of times so i'm assuming that's probably throughout of like why would you build a school here why would you like expand these buildings why would you yeah. do this now, it was feedback that we got uh, sort of uh, after we put out the first version of the tutorial um, actually, it was a second version. So the first version was just, here are some challenges, try to accomplish these challenges. And there's no real guides or anything. And we said we need to be a little more hands-on than this uh, for players who just haven't really learned how to navigate the interface yet. So we added this button uh, that said, tell me how. And it's completely optional if you want to do this. Uh, and if you click it, it will sort of guide you through the interface and show you highlights. Where do you click next and how do you use this and and so on. Uh, and then once we had added that, people in the dev team were like, okay, cool. So now you've told me you've told me that I should do something. You've explained how, but I still don't know why. <laughs> so we added <laughs> another button called tell me why. Uh, 
uh, and and that one uh, tends to go in really deep into what are the consequences of doing things, um, what are the side effects or knock-on effects of doing something, when might you not want to do this, uh, and so on. So it's a bit of more of a deep dive, but it tends to give players yeah a lot more to think about. So we touched on the kind of high-level overview or, or mission objective, if you will, of Victoria 3, of how it simulates history and its individual or population-focused consequences of, of how these nations develop. Um, we talked about the approach to getting new players onboarded and the objectives and the tell-me-why. Are there any other big... I, I'm sure we could go on for a long time, but... Are there any other big pillars of Victoria 3 that you feel like we've missed that were core to the design of making the game? Um, so I mentioned economic and uh, politics. Uh, and uh, when I say politics, I mean domestic politics, sort of like the, the, your, your country's uh, laws, what sort of government it has mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Those, those I feel like we've talked about a bit. Um, the other ones uh, are... The, the the other very important one is diplomacy. So uh, with a diplomacy in the game, we wanted to, uh, again, kind of make sure that war doesn't just happen because uh, someone wants to claim more territory just because they want to sort of see their color get bigger on the map, what we call map painting, right? Uh, but we wanted there to at least be some sort of underlying reason for uh, for going to war that is uh, realistic to some degree. And usually it's not, I want to go to war. It's, I want something from you and you won't give it to me. So we created this system called Diplomatic Place uh, where you can make a hostile demand of someone and then they, they can either yield to that uh, and give you what you want because you're just, they they can't afford to let this go to a, a hot war. Um, or they can add a counterclaim of their own and then other sides can join in and start taking sides, right? And you have this sort of prelude to war that sets the parameters for what might happen if this does break out. And throughout this whole process, uh, either side can back down and say, okay, no, that's that's enough of a game of chicken for me. I've had my fill. Uh, I'm 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 gonna I'm gonna back off my claim, or I'm gonna give in to what you want, um, and uh, this I think is something that sets us apart a bit from uh, from other um, uh, from other strategy titles as well. Is is that you are always fighting? You're never just fighting for the sake of fighting over something that you can only get from fighting. You can also get that through diplomacy and you can usually get that by bullying people to get your way or to get enough people on your side uh, to just make sure that this doesn't uh, mm-hmm. become a war. For that to work too, uh, for that to have any chance of working, <laughs> I should say, because players like to go to war. <laughs> it's fun, right? Uh, players like to 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 measure their power against other uh, forces. So that's just intrinsic. Um, so in order to make this uh, make any amount of sense, we also had to make war extremely costly. Mm. Mm-hmm. And in Victoria, it is directly linked to your economy, right? So um, you're, you're paying your soldiers, uh, you're paying for their equipment, 
Um, you're paying for the uh, fleets that are supplying them if they're overseas. Um, and all of those costs balloon like crazy when you go to war. So it becomes a cost in, in uh, lives, of course, as well, which are also, you know, workers in your factory and all that stuff. Um, and, and, um, and material goods and, and, and money. So um, there are real incentives for trying to make sure that something doesn't escalate into a war in Victoria. Um, and uh, one more thing is this sort of era of change, right? So we want things to feel very different throughout the game as you play. Uh, and uh, the technology system has a big uh, component of that. It's not just uh, inventions like you might imagine. Um, that's a big part of it, but it's also uh, military advancements and uh, societal advancements. So just like ideas and things that sort of come to the come to the front. Um, and uh, everything that you built up with your economy changes along with that, right? So we have. Um, textile mills that will start using more uh, modern production methods that will uh, just drastically improve the, their output. Uh, and because of the way the economy works, it doesn't just mean that uh, everything you now have much more clothes. It means uh, clothes can now bottom out on the market and the people who are making them are no longer getting paid as much because their labor is not worth as much. So they have to go off and do something else or uh, or they um, they will they will be uh, buying cheap clothes, but everything else becomes more expensive for them, and it has all these knock-on effects on society as well as you're improving things. So the upgrades aren't just upgrades; they affect different parts of the population differently. Do you also see the like the opposite of that, where like we know in history, wars often led to advancements in like technology and like medicine. Do you mm -hmm. see that as well? Like if people are, they have a war going on that they're actually advancing in other ways? So um, there are components of that that we have aspirations to build in that we haven't yet. Uh, things like uh, technology spread is something that we have in the game, but it's not influenced so much by war yet. That is something that definitely, uh, for those who are not familiar with the Paradox Grand Strategy games, they essentially turn into live games um, when, when, when we release, right? So we keep the life cycle going for these yeah. for like five, six years often uh, and continually update. So we have big plans of course for Victoria what we're gonna what's gonna come out uh, next both in expansions and in uh, free updates um, and one of the things we definitely want to do is uh, expand on tech spread at some point so that you can learn from your enemies learn from your allies um, but uh, right now I think the best way to sort of think about the effect that you're mentioning is is uh, more the other way around you will be advancing uh, you'll, you'll be advancing your technologies because you want to do better in war. And one of the one of the things, one of the military technologies is actually medicine so that you can uh, make sure that people don't, you know, just just die of attrition right. as soon as you send them out in the field. <laughs> right. Which was very common in the era. So with all this being said, taking all these gameplay systems into account, I'm sure there's going to be a tough question, Mikhail, because you've played a lot of this game. But do you have a certain approach or go-to strategy 
for starting a campaign in Victoria 3? So I will say I am actually really terrible at playing my own game. (laughs) And the reason for this is because I become so obsessed with the minutia Mm. of the Mm -hmm. game that I forget the big picture a lot of the time. So um, I will happily, and I think, I mean, part of this, it's my own fault, right? Because it's it's, uh, a... National gardening is is one of the sort of key terms that we use in describing Victoria, that we want you to have a lot of uh, things you can do with your own country to just sit and improve and micromanage things and tweak things uh, without necessarily having to look outside your borders all the time for things to do. Uh, And uh, I tend to uh, optimize too much and overanalyze too much and go in and look at individual pops and seeing what they consume too much and then before i know it you know the game's been paused for two hours because i've just been staring at (laughs) charts and (laughs) stuff like that so this is this is this is kind of my problem um but um uh but also in terms of general approach i guess I just tend to focus a lot on the country that I play and uh, transforming that and growing that. Um, and I know this is this is a very common play style from what I've seen uh, out in the community as well, is uh, people just sort of tinkering and making their country better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, then, then the next level, when you graduate, to sort of like look outside your borders and see how you can affect the rest of the mm-hmm. world, right? Uh, but I, I think I'm still at the baby stage of the <laughs> three player. Uh, there's so much data to dig into. That's, I mean, I, my next question was going to be like, what would your advice be to new players? But I feel like that kind of, it's okay to take the baby steps and start small and like maybe just focus on your country before yeah. expanding and looking elsewhere. Absolutely. I think uh, actually I have a few uh, a few things I would like to say on this. Uh, first one is uh, it's okay to fail, right? That is something I think. Uh, I mean, it's very common in paradox games, but if you're not com- if, like super familiar with with paradox GSGs, but you're you're you play other strategy games or other games in general, failure is not usually a thing anymore in games like it's very very outside of roguelikes maybe right like roguelike it's like an entire genre around it's okay to fail (laughs) um but uh it is absolutely fine to not understand 80 percent of the game in your first playthrough you will pick it up sort of over time uh and, and just play around with stuff and uh, see what happens when you do things. Don't be afraid to press buttons. Uh, you know, uh, don't be afraid to fail for sure. Uh, there's usually ways of snapping you back as well. If you have a failure, it's usually not the end of the world. Maybe you lose something, but now you have a reason to try to retake it, right? Um, and uh, yes, uh, it, it, like you were saying, yeah, it's okay to focus on your own country uh allow the ai to be a little reactive at you right so all the other countries are playing against you or with you right but it's okay to to focus on your own stuff and seeing what the ai does and then responding to that uh you don't always have to be have to be driving everything right um yeah i think those are 
that's pretty good advice. All oh oh another another one. Have have a theory for what you want to do. This is kind of what we were trying to do with the objectives, right? But because a game is so uh, open ended, you can go so many diff different directions. It can be a little overwhelming if you don't have a plan. So if you're not playing with an objective in a suggested country, um, then you know pick a country that you have some passing familiarity with from what it was like in history and think about, well, what would happen if uh, I turned Spain into a parliamentary republic by 1870? How would that look? Uh, how would that pan out? What if I gave total uh what if i implemented censorship all over uh, all over france right and just hardcore oppressive censorship and nobody was allowed to speak their mind what would happen right try try to try to get something done and, and see how that pans out that's usually the most fun I, that sounds the most fun to me i i'm gonna play it and i think that's how i'm gonna approach it once I get maybe past a little bit of the baby stage, because I yeah. opened it and I was like, "This is a lot," and I'm like, "We're just I'm just going to talk to Mikhail first before I even try." Because I love strategy games, but I I'm not too familiar with grand strategy. I played a little bit of like Crusader Kings back in the day, and mm -hmm. then I was like became a, a baby and was like, "I'm scared of grand strategy games," even though I <laughs> love strategy games. It's yeah. Yeah, no, it's I mean, a lot of people, uh, a lot of people will even just go into observer mode and hit the play button and seeing what happens, just panning around the map and looking at what the AI is doing is fun and can be a good way also to just sort of get you into what sort of things might be possible in this game. Yeah. Right. And and give you an idea for what you might want to try next. Well, well, I'm looking forward to seeing like. I'm looking forward to getting into it, but also seeing what more you guys add to it. Like you said, it's it's a live game now, and you'll be working on yep. it for many years to come since it came out last October. Um, yes. On uh, uh, the 22nd of this month, so a couple of weeks after this is coming out, I guess, we're releasing our first immersion pack that's called Voice of the People, and it's focusing on France, and it's adding a mechanic around agitator characters. So okay. uh, revolutionaries that can uh, travel from country to country and become exiled from your country and appear elsewhere and start political movements to enact certain kind of laws and things like that. So uh, that's a big up update and a big upgrade uh, also that we're adding as, an, as a free update um, to, uh, to a lot of the the components and system especially france uh and uh and yeah we're gonna be uh we're gonna be working on this game for a long time to come well we look forward to it um sam did you have any last minute questions i know we're you we touched on it right here at the end is there anything else coming or about victoria 3 whether in the future or available now that you'd like to explain or, or flag for our listeners uh, really just that uh right now uh, sorry, I I, uh, I I went ahead a little bit uh, of you with that, uh, but uh, uh, no, I think I think uh, there there are of course more things coming out, but nothing that we have announced uh, as of yet. We are working away uh, at uh, at the next big thing. We have, uh, I mean, those of you who have 
um, bought the Grand Edition or checked out the Grand Edition knows that we're also going to be releasing an art pack and an expansion, uh, full uh, full gameplay expansion um, uh, at some point in the near future, uh, but we have not given any additional details on that yet. Uh, oh. And then, of course, it's just gonna it's just gonna continue along from there with with uh, with regular updates to the game. That's great. Yeah. Well, lots to look forward to for our listeners and for ourselves. Um, thank you again so much for joining us. This was a great conversation, getting to know you more and your journey and about Victoria 3. Um, where can people find you? I'm not sure if you're a social media user, but if so, you can mention that now or they could just check out your games. No, the best, uh, the best place is uh, victoria3game.com. We have a Discord channel as well. Uh, that you can find through victoria3game.com um, with a with a great great community and we sometimes uh, run Q and A sessions there and uh, uh, open betas and stuff like that uh, where you can talk to us more. Great, yeah, we'll link those in the description of the podcast so people can click on those and find you guys. Um, Sam, where can people find you? Find me everywhere at Sam Scott Mosier. Uh, thank you again, Mikhail, for your time and, and congrats on Victoria 3. Caitlin, where can the people find you? They can find me at Caitlin Redwing everywhere and the podcast at Realtime Strats or at podcast at triplepointpr.com. Um, yes. And again, thank you so much, Mikhail, for joining us. This is, it was a great conversation and I'm happy you joined us. Thank you so much. It was really great to uh, talk to you guys. All right. Well, thank you all for listening and until next time.